I'd like to ask you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me, please, to Psalm 73, the 73rd Psalm. It was my privilege to be with you several years ago to minister God's Word, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to see you again, and especially to see some faces that are more familiar to me from other connections. Um, let me say before I begin that I have so appreciated the privilege of becoming better acquainted with your pastor. Uh, I've had opportunity on a number of occasions to have lunch with uh, Pastor Nail and uh, have just enjoyed getting to know him better and appreciate the, the work of, of Christ in his life. A week ago, Saturday, uh, in the afternoon, a dear friend, uh, a deacon in our church, a long-standing member of two decades, Richard Birdshaw, uh, died and went to be with the Lord. Uh, Richard had found out less than a month ago uh, that he had stage four advanced melanoma. Uh, he had been having pain in his shoulder and had thought that he had a separated shoulder and upon further investigation, it was discovered that he had a mass in his shoulder that was eating through muscle and bone. Um, in that same time period, he'd had a growth that he thought was just a, uh, a cyst, uh, even a pimple at first. A growth was removed from his head. It was suspected that maybe these growths were related. That was confirmed, and a PET scan revealed that uh, the melanoma was already well advanced through his whole upper body. Uh, being in his lymph nodes and in his lungs and in his pancreas and in his hips and spine and shoulder. He just shot through with it. And less than four weeks after the discovery of his having cancer, Richard, uh, having finished extremely well as a Christian, full of faith and hope, passed away a week ago, leaving a, a wife and three children still at home, a 15-year-old daughter, a 12-year-old daughter, and a nine-year-old son. Richard was 49. He would have turned 50 uh, this December. I would like to explore with you this morning the question of what happened to Richard about 3.15 a week ago Saturday in the moment that he had his last breath. What happens to any and every true follower of Jesus Christ when they die? And I'd like to answer that question along three lines of thought. And the first line is this, when the believer dies, Jesus Christ receives him to glory. When the Christian, uh, not just the religious, religious person, not just the churchgoer, uh, not just those who say, oh yes, I believe in God, uh, but when the real follower of Jesus Christ, the one who, who really has come to believe that Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life that we have no righteousness in and of ourselves that will even get close to bringing us into the presence of a holy God, but that Jesus has that righteousness, and through relying upon him, there is access into the presence of God. For those who have come to lean on Jesus in that way, they've been brought to love Jesus, they follow Jesus in the moment that they leave this world, Jesus himself receives them 
into glory. And the text that I'm uh, thinking of in particular here, Psalm 73, verse 24, the psalmist said, You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. You will guide me with your counsel. The Christian's life in this world is one that is characterized by being guided by the counsel of God. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The Christian life is one in which the the, the map that we follow is the word of God. And through that inspired word, through that holy and wise and gracious word, the great shepherd guides his sheep through this life. You will guide me with your counsel, and afterward, after this life is over, receive me to glory. That's exactly what happened for Richard Birdshaw a week ago Saturday. Jesus received him into glory. Glory has been defined as resplendent beauty magnificence, uh, majesty. When we think of glory, we think uh, biblically of passages like Ephesians 1 that speaks repeatedly of the praise of the glory, the praise of the glory of God's grace. And what's the idea there? Uh, The idea is that God's grace, his undeserved favor, his readiness to show lavish kindness to those like us, who deserve the very opposite of kindness, uh, that is to be extolled, that is to be praised, and indeed, throughout eternity, it will be lauded. It it will be made much of, that it is a a heavy thing to the praise of the glory of His grace, the the weightiness of God's favor, the the wonder of God's favor, the the magnificence of God's favor. That's, That's the idea of glory. We're, we're speaking of something that is splendid, that is stunning, that is wonderful. Now, heaven is the one place in the universe where the greatness of God is exhibited without any marring, and it, it is admired without any sinning. Heaven is the one place in our universe where the glory of God is on unblemished, uninterrupted display, and heaven is the one place where where God's magnificence is being responded to without any sin or without any of the consequences of sin, such as fatigue or such as a distracted mind. When God first created the earth, our planet, uh, this earth, was a theater in which God's splendor was on full display, and there was no distortion of that splendor, There was no interruption of the exhibition of that magnificence, nor was there any problem in how Adam and Eve initially responded to that glory. Uh, They loved God's glory. They adored God's glory. They marveled at God's glory. But then sin came into the world. God, in his mysterious sovereign wisdom, allowed for the devil uh, to come into being and to enter into the Garden of Eden and to tempt the first man and the first woman. And you know the story. Man rebelled against God, and with that defiance, the exhibition of God's glory on earth was marred, deeply marred, because God's curse came upon this earth. There are yet flashes of the magnificence of God that we see 
if we have an eye for it, we can see flashes daily on some level. But the world as a whole, and people as a whole, and every person individually, there's been this great marring of the glory of God. The Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, and that's abundantly evident every day. There is so much that is so wrong, so much that is so ugly, uh, so much that is so painful. And that's true on some level in our own lives and our hearts. Uh, that's true on some level in our own homes. But you think of the world at large, and there are, there are horrific things that happen on the planet in this county uh, every single day, things that are so far removed from the magnificence of God. And at the heart of what has happened with respect to the glory of God is that unbelievers, they have no genuine admiration for the greatness of God. They, they never think about God in terms of being splendidly attractive. They, they have no affection for God. They, they, have, they have no worship of God. And this, this is the state of our race by nature. This is the way you and I came into the world. Uh, perhaps many of you uh, came into a setting like myself where uh, parents took you to church, taught you about God. You heard, you've heard about Jesus all of your life. Perhaps you've grown up always knowing the teaching of Scripture. But by nature, no matter how many advantages we were born with, not one of us came out of the womb with an inclination to think God is great. God is glorious. Heaven is the one and only place in the universe where the greatness and the sweetness of God is on full display constantly and all the inhabitants of heaven are fully dialed in to his greatness. For those of us who have been born from above, for those of us in whom the Spirit of God now dwells, for those of us who have come to faith in Christ, our eyes have been opened, and we now see that, that God is indeed magnificent, and His grace in particular is, is stunning. And yet in our best moments, uh, we're, we're seeing as through a dark glass. Heaven's the one place where there is no dark glass and where the magnificence of God is constantly on display and everyone there is dialed into it. They, they marvel at God. They adore God. They delight in God. They never get bored with God. There's never a sense of, same old, same old. There's never a sense of, when is this sermon going to end? There's never a sense of, what's next? Uh, God is glorious and people delight in that in heaven. About 3.15 p.m., last Saturday afternoon, a week ago, Richard stepped into the glory. And he made this incredible transition from a world where God is so infrequently admired and at best poorly admired, relatively speaking. And he moved into a world where the greatness of God is admired unceasingly wholeheartedly, without any hindrance, without any sin. You think of passages like 
Revelation 4, Revelation 5, passages that describe what heaven is like, give us scenes of heaven. Let me read uh, from one of these passages, Revelation 4, verses 8 and following. Speaking of what's called the four living creatures, we read that they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. And in passages like that, of course, Revelation, more than any other book of the Bible, gives us uh, glimpses, gives us portraits of, of heaven. And what we see there is a scene of the glory of God being placarded before all the inhabitants. And the, and the response that dominates is that every creature there is bowed down before that greatness, adoring that greatness, extolling that greatness. For the Christian to die is to instantly be received into glory. A second line of the answer of what happens to the Christian when he dies is that when the believer dies, Christ receives him into his immediate presence. Now, in the point that we were just reflecting upon, uh, we saw that a synonym, a biblical synonym for heaven is glory. And that used to be a way that God's people would talk. He, 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 he died and went to glory. You don't hear that kind of language as much today. But that's a, that's a very biblical way of talking. Uh, he died and went to glory. Well, another synonym for heaven, along with glory, is simply Jesus. And in fact, we never see the New Testament explicitly speaking of God's people dying and going to heaven. The New Testament speaks repeatedly, though, of Christians dying and going to be with the Lord. That, that's, the, that's the Bible's way of, of emphasizing the destination of the people of God. We are going, not so much to heaven, we are going to Jesus. We are going to be with the Lord. We are going to the one who redeemed us from our sins. And there are many passages that could be referred to at this point. You think of John 17, uh, what is oftentimes called the high priestly prayer. Uh, Jesus on the eve before his crucifixion, uh, just a matter of hours or minutes before he would be arrested and then would be condemned and then later the next day would be crucified after having been beaten and whipped. Uh, Jesus, you remember, spent his last evening talking with his disciples in the upper room. Uh, his heart was troubled as he anticipated the, the agony of Golgotha. Uh, he knew their hearts were troubled. He was concerned to comfort them and to reassure them and to encourage them. And so he talks with them about many things, and then he prays for them in John 17. And as he prays for them and as he prays for all those who would come to believe in him through their word, one of the things he prayed, John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me 
where I am, that they may behold my glory. We infer that Jesus has continued to pray in this way through the ages. That now that he is in heaven at the right hand of God the Father, we're told in Romans 8, we're told in Hebrews 7, that he ever lives to intercede for his people. And we infer that one of the things that he continually is making intercession about is that all those who have trusted in him, those whom the Father gave to him, that they would come to be with him. It's comforting to me as a pastor, as a friend of many years to Richard Birdshaw to think that a week ago, that prayer of Jesus Christ was answered. That the Father, as it were, looked at his son and said, okay, yes, yes, now, this man, Richard, can come to be with you where you are, that he might behold you in your glory, the glory that you had from before the foundation of the world. We think of the famous passage dealing with the penitent thief on the cross, Luke 23, one of our favorite gospel narratives, and uh, Jesus was crucified uh, in the midst of two criminals, men who deserved to be executed, men who had earned the right to an excruciating death through their crimes, through their heinous way of life, and of course, one of those criminals, while on the cross, is brought gloriously to repentance. Jesus had prayed just moments earlier, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And Jesus had the encouragement of seeing that plea answered before his own eyes. There's at least one right there who is forgiven, right in the moments of his redeeming agony. And this criminal uh, expresses incredible faith. And you know, of course, the the assurance that Jesus gave him before either one of them expired, that today this, this man who had lived such a wretched life, that this man, having turned from his sins, today you will be with me in paradise. This is, this is what, what heaven is. It's being with Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, another well-known passage where uh, the Apostle Paul is discussing uh, the whole matter of being uh, his earthly tent, his earthly body, uh, being taken away uh, through death, uh, but there being a house that is awaiting for him, a permanent dwelling place, thinking ahead of the resurrection body that will never die, that will never diminish, that will never deteriorate. And uh, in that passage, you have the famous words of verse 8, 2 Corinthians 5, we are of good courage, I say, preferring rather to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. This is heaven, to be with the Lord. Perhaps the best-known passage in the New Testament, Philippians 1, 23, best-known with respect to this matter of being with Christ. Well, Paul is in prison in Rome. He's writing to the church at Philippi, and he's anticipating that he will be released. He feels that it would be good for him to be released because he has a heavy sense of responsibility for the young, immature churches like the one at Philippi, and he feels a pressure of responsibility to be able to continue to shepherd them and to guide them. So he is hoping from that angle that he will be released, that he might continue his ministry, yet he recognizes he might not be released, he might be martyred, and as he contemplates that prospect, he said, I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire 
to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. He had this sense of responsibility pulling him towards remaining on earth, but as he thought about martyrdom, he understood, well, boy, that would be the doorway to being with Jesus. And he says that would be very much better. If it's just a matter of preference, that's a no-brainer. I'd rather die and go to be with the Lord. Going to be with Jesus emphasizes how personal heaven will be. It's difficult, isn't it, for us to grasp what, what would it be like to be in a world that is largely non-physical and heaven as it now is in what we call its intermediate state, its in-between state. It's not as it will be one day when our Lord comes back and renews, regenerates the whole universe and there's a new heaven and a new earth and there'll be a glorious physicality that awaits the people of God, a resurrected body, glorified, living in a glorified world. That's what awaits the people of God, but that's not now. That's when Jesus comes back. Now, in this intermediate state, heaven is primarily a non-material realm, and we think of the saints, like Richard, who have departed, living in a non-material condition. Some suggest that they're giving a temporary body. That could be true, but it's not something that the New Testament emphasizes or makes certain. What's it like to be bodiless? Uh, the spirits of just men made perfect, Hebrews 12 speaks up. What's it like to be a perfected spirit in a non-material world where perhaps the only physical reality is Jesus himself, who already has his resurrected body, his glorified body. Well, whatever that's like, and the New Testament doesn't give us a, a whole lot of insight into what heaven is now like in the details. But this much is clear, as we've seen. Being in heaven is being with Jesus. He has a glorified body. He is obviously human. He can be seen. He can be touched. And thinking of going to be with Christ emphasizes how personal heaven will be. I remember it being pointed out once in some sermons on heaven that the descriptions of Revelation that speak of streets of gold and pearly gates, it can come across as a little bit cold and impersonal, a little bit metallic. And some people may think it's just wonderful to be surrounded by gold and by pearls, but many of us would rather be in an outdoor scene, uh, seeing a beautiful sloping meadow with trees and a creek or something like that. But, but again, the thought of Jesus being in heaven makes the thought of heaven very warm. Uh, it is a tender place. It is an affectionate place. It is an intimate place because Jesus is there. It's true that Jesus is there in his glory. He is exalted. He is awesome. But Jesus is and always will be the Lamb of God. And Revelation portrays that he is addressed in that way by, by the redeemed, the Lamb of God who has taken away sins. Christ's redemption is the grand theme of heaven. Christ's person is the central figure in heaven. His praise is the main song of heaven. His presence, the main privilege of heaven. When Richard died a week ago, 
he found himself in the presence of Jesus Christ. And it is Jesus, more than anyone else, who exhibits the glory of God. The first two points of the message go together. The magnificence of God, the splendor of God, has been revealed most fully in the person of Jesus. This is where we're able to best grasp, best understand the the radiance of who God is. He's not a force. He is a person. He is a loving person. Holy, yes. Just, yes. Majestic, yes. But especially in his love that he is a person who wants relationship and seeks relationship and has established that relationship will exist forever and ever because he sent his son to live the life that we have not lived, to die to bear the judgment that you and I deserve. God's glory shines even more greatly now in the light of the coming of Jesus, the dying of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the subsequent exaltation of Jesus. Last Saturday afternoon, for the first time ever, Richard saw his Savior face to face. And that's what happens with every real Christian when they die. They see Jesus face to face. Perhaps there was a welcoming party. As I was driving over this morning, I was reflecting who might have been some of the first figures. If you could think of going into heaven as involving perhaps kind of like a a tunnel, an entranceway, a a walkway perhaps, uh, and people on either side of the walkway, hands outstretched, welcoming. Uh, I was thinking who might have been some of the people that would have first greeted Richard as he entered into heaven. And I thought of people from our own congregation. A dear friend who was a fellow elder for a number of years, Charles McKelvin, uh, passed away earlier this year at the age of 60. And I wondered if Charles might be one of the men that would first uh, greet Richard, having had a shepherding role in his life for many years. But whoever may have been part of a welcoming party, the one that Richard had the greatest joy in seeing and the one that Richard will always most enjoy seeing is Jesus himself. Well, thirdly and finally, when the believer dies, Christ gives him fullness of joy. He receives him into glory. He receives him into his own immediate presence. And then finally, he gives that person fullness of joy. Psalm 16, verse 11. In thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand there are pleasures forever. Psalm 16, 11, In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forever. Richard is now swimming in the ocean of heavenly pleasure, of fullness of joy. We are made for relationship. And while we rightly have an instinct to seek relationship with one another, we rightly have an instinct to cherish 
marital, family relationships, friendships. Uh, there is one relationship that is paramount above others, and that is being related to the one who made us. Augustine's most famous words are, are I can't actually quote them word for word, but paraphrase, and we are restless and we cannot find our rest until we find it in thee. And uh, it is <coughs> in finding a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, whereby sins are forgiven, whereby our persons are accepted, therein is fullness of joy. Now, of course, the joy of heaven is related to the glory of heaven. It's preeminently re related to being with Jesus. We've already reflected upon those points. Let me close this morning by talking about the joy of heaven in connection with the absence of our biggest threats and burdens and the presence of the most glorious company. First, the absence of our biggest threats and burdens will certainly contribute to the ecstasy of heaven, the, the elation of the experience of beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Uh, our, our happiness, our delight will be intensely enhanced by the absence of certain threats and burdens. The Christian will no longer there face any temptation. Richard's experience just in the last eight days is so radically different from what his experience as a believer was in this world because the believer in this world does not have the luxury of one day where we do not face temptation on some level. There is every day some dynamic of a solicitation towards evil. That's what temptation is. Uh, oftentimes, it's something that no one else is aware of outside of us because temptation takes place inside of us. It may be something related to external uh, features. There may be uh, a sight that we see that becomes the occasion of temptation. There may be something that we hear that becomes the occasion of temptation. Uh, there may be something that we read that becomes the occasion of temptation. But where temptation really takes place is in the theater of the soul. And that's where the battle rages for the Christian as we daily on some level have to deal with the solicitation towards what is wrong. In heaven, there's none of that. That's done. That is over. There is no devil. He cannot come into heaven. God, in the mystery of his ways, allowed the devil into the Garden of Eden. And in that sense, the Garden of Eden was not an indefectible world. It was perfectly upright for a while, but it was capable of becoming imperfect. It was capable of allowing evil in, in God's providence. But heaven is different. Evil cannot come into heaven. There is no tempter. And temptation is forever a thing of the past. Never again will the believer in heaven, who in a sense is no longer a believer because faith has then become sight, no longer will the Christian in heaven ever, ever again feel the least inclination towards what is impure, towards what is false, 
towards what is wrong. In close connection with that, uh, the Christian no longer sins in heaven. On some level, every day is a Romans 7 day for the Christian in this world. On some level. Sometimes those days are intense days. Sometimes when we read, wretched man that I am, we see our name all over that text. Sometimes we may feel that we are nothing but a big blob of sin. But in heaven, that's done. We will always have a sense of having been sinners saved by grace, but we never again will have the painful experience of actually committing transgression. No more weariness in that world. My wife, for the last 20 years, has been characterized by a significant measure of fatigue, and as I was reflecting over the message as I drove over this morning, I I was thinking again about how wonderful heaven will be for Beth from the standpoint of energy and being alert and being alive and being able to worship with no sense of having a, a cloud or a shadow of fatigue that is pulling upon her, upon her mind and upon her spirit. No more suffering, of course. No more dying. One of our favorite texts when we think about heaven Revelation 21, 4, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. But it's not just the absence of threats and burdens that will enhance the Christian's joy and glory. It's also the presence of certain things that we're not present in the same way before. And here, uh, we've already talked about the presence of Jesus, which is at the heart of heaven. But here I'm thinking of the presence of holy angels and the presence of every other saint who is already in heaven. We're thinking of Moses. We're thinking of David. We're thinking of Mary. We're thinking uh, perhaps of a dear mother or a grandmother. Uh, We're thinking, uh, I'm thinking even now as I speak, of my dear friend Charles McKelvin, who entered into heaven a few months ago, and Richard just a week ago. Uh, Heaven will involve the presence of these people who were dear to us in this world. Uh, And what was at the heart of what was precious about the relationship was the common bond, our attachment to Jesus. And we will be with them, and we will be with them in a whole new way because we will be with them sinlessly. We will be with them in the immediate presence of Jesus. We will be with them in the face of the glory, the splendor, the radiance. We'll be experiencing that together. We'll be responding to that together. Isn't it true that that everything that we have known to be precious in this life has been made more precious by being able to share it with someone else that we love? And heaven will very much be a, a shared world It won't be a a solo world. It will be a family world. It will be a place of glorious togetherness without any of the things that complicate and that bring pain into relationships in this world. There will be no sin, so there will be nothing said, nothing done that will injure 
it will be a world of perfect harmony. Sometimes I think that the most glorious thing about heaven will be the unity that is there. Have we not felt on some level the anguish of disharmony in this life? Sometimes experience with those where we most expect closeness, moments of marital discord and strain, times where within the church of Jesus Christ, people get sideways to one another, and there's misunderstanding, and there's uh, hurtful things said and done. The deepest pain I've known in this life, interpersonally, has been the pain experienced in connection with people that I love the most. That's where my expectations were the highest. That's where my hopes were the highest, and to be hurt by those whom I've loved the most, by those whom I've been closest to. That's been the deepest pain. It's wonderful to think that Richard is now in a world of perfect harmony. There's no doctrinal disputing. There's no practical divisions. There are no signs in heaven with all the adjectives that distinguish one group from every other group. There is a glorious, what's the word, homogeneity, a, a togetherness, all on the same page. And something else that's glorious about that togetherness is that is, it is an anticipating company because the best is still to come. In heaven, there's still the presence of hope because not every good thing that God has promised has been realized yet. So even the saints in heaven join saints like us on earth in looking for the great day when Jesus will come back and make all things new and bodies will be resurrected, both of the wicked as well as the righteous. And only then will the people of God enter into their final and climactic state, their eternal state, of bliss with a glorified body living in a glorified earth perhaps exploring together an ever expanding glorified universe it's an anticipating company well if you are an honest follower of Jesus Christ you may struggle with assurance you may be Immature, that might be an accurate description of your Christian experience. Some believers are immature. All of us are relatively immature. But if you are an honest follower of Jesus Christ, do we not have great hope, y'all, for us? This is, this, is, this is our future. This is our destiny. I don't want Richard to come back to me now I want to go to him. And as a 53-year-old, uh, amidst the diminishing outward man that I'm beginning to be, to be more conscious of, I'm also conscious of I'm on, the, I'm on the backside of my life. Even if God gives me a long life, I will not live another 53 years, I am certain. And I'm closer to the end than I used to be. And that's, that's a good thing, y'all. If you're a Christian, we really are waiting for our best things.
And we have good reason to not become so tied to the things of this life. We have good reason to be growing and holding the blessings of this life, including people who are dear to us, with an open hand, not grasping in such a way that when God takes them from us, be it a job, or be it a certain level of income, or be it a certain house, or be it a mom, or be it a spouse, we have good reason amidst the understandable pain to not be those who clench to things as if this, what we have right now, this is life. That's not true. We are, we are looking for life. We are waiting for life. Life is on the near horizon. We have good reason to be full of hope, to be full of gratitude, to be full of courage. If you are not a Christian, if you are not an honest follower of Jesus Christ, you have no reason to, to think that that good old boy, Southern Hope, where we go to a funeral and the preacher talks like, everything's okay, we're all on our way to heaven, it's all going to be good, you have no reason to think that that applies to you. Heaven awaits only those who love the Lord Jesus. One of the main marks of those who love the Lord Jesus is a consciousness of how poorly we have loved him, an awareness of how deeply we need him to save us from the failure to love him as we should. And does that resonate at all in your heart, that you need a savior because you haven't loved God as you ought? And have you embraced the good news that declares such a Savior has come? Not for the good people. Not for the going to church people. Not for those who are able to make it through the whole of life without committing adultery. Jesus came for sinners. Has that become a reality in your soul? that you are the kind of person who need a Savior because you are guilty, you are polluted, you have not loved God as you should. The good news is that one came who did love God perfectly and then died to bear the punishment that all the rest of us deserve. Trust Him. Believe Him. And then, if you get the stunning news that there's a cancer overtaking you, you'll have a capacity, at least, to finish as Richard Birdshaw finished, full of faith, full of hope, confident that to die is gain. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your precious word, which is indeed a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We thank you that you have not left us in the dark concerning what comes after this life. We thank you that you have not left us condemned with no hope. We thank you for the good news that there is a place called heaven where Jesus the Savior dwells where 
the splendor of your being is on full, unceasing display, and where your magnificence is enjoyed and extolled. And we thank you that you sent into this cursed world your only Son, that whoever, no matter what we've done, no matter what we've been, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life in your glorious presence. Oh God, increase our faith. Oh Lord, help us to see what is presently unseen. And for those who do not know you, oh God, open their eyes. Enable them to see by faith the glory. In Christ's name, amen.